0: Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. We are at the end of our Erotic Performer <laughs> Month. We are really lucky today to have uh, Jet Noir here. He is a burlesque performer, somebody i followed online avidly for years. He is a cat dad and has some really thoughtful stuff to post on Twitter in general, even though he has not been there lately. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Question, I start with all, all the people who got into the erotic arts. How did you get into this? Because this is not something when you do those high school, you know, what will you be good at? What should you do when you grow up? They don't say go into burlesque, go into porn. Like this is, this is not a a high school option. Uh,
1: In high school, I was actually voted most likely to be a lawyer, but that's another conversation. Uh, I, how I, I don't know that I have a, a, sort of a very specific origin story, but I do have one that's more or less linear in that I grew up in a very sex positive environment. Like there my my brother had like center folds and things like that, like like Playboy penthouse, like spread Levia and everything posted on his wall and my mom never said take it down, you know? And like the, the neighbors had like different flavors of lube up on their dresser. That was just how they existed. And so I would see that as a kid. And so there was that. And then there was when I was in my twenties in Atlanta and I first discovered like sex clubs and things like that, uh, that led me to just doing a lot of just being surrounded by a lot of sexually open people. And then I think my first foray into erotic arts was when uh, there was this place called the Apache Cafe, and they had an event called Art Mondays happening. And this is, like I said, downtown Atlanta, and this is like late '90s, early 2000s. And there would have an art model in the back, and we would just pose nude, and people would either photograph us or sketch us. And and it was a really cool experience. And they let me just, you know, bring in. Uh, they let me just kind of do what I wanted up there. So I would make up my own poses. I would bring props and like partial costumes and things like that still being mostly nude. And it was, uh, and it was just fun for me. And, and then for, because I, you know, I, I could never draw, but I was like, oh, well, I feel like it's it's nice to be the muse for others. Right. So that was, I think that was like how I got in. And then from there, it just kind of like, I just kept saying yes and yes to more weird shit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that's the best part of it is there's so much to explore. So you brought up something that hasn't come up with too many of my guests. Is It's a few that have brought it up, but not many, is being raised in a very sex-positive, open household. You were the first non-white person to bring that up. And uh, was that unusual amongst your friends' groups? Or were your parents like part of a more liberal, more open group growing up?
1: You know, I think that... I don't know that I would refer to my parents' group of friends as sexually liberal, you know, but at the same time, none of them were hung up about it or just upset if the subject came up, it wasn't a taboo thing. And because of that, it didn't create this like unhealthy curiosity, you know? And so uh, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where all of the, families on the block had owned their home for like 10 years before i was even born so there were a lot of nuclear families black nuclear families in 80s 90s detroit and that's just that you know growing up in growing up in an all-black neighborhood is something that especially in the 80s and 90s is something that is is a big part of why i am who i am
0: if you- bring up that it doesn't give you an unhealthy feeling around sexuality, right? That that unhealthy curiosity. We are in the middle of masturbation month, which was developed to honor Jocelyn Elders, Surgeon General, who said, we should teach masturbation in school. Like, like that was such a radical idea. It got her fired. And there are a lot of folks that are afraid that if we tell kids that it's okay to masturbate, that sex is a normal part of life, that you're just going to grow up and be a hoe.
1: And that may be true.
0: That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but what did growing up like that when you started to explore your own sexuality was there discomfort around it? Was there feelings that maybe I because you're out as a bisexual, you know, that maybe this is wrong, or was it just like I can go about this and go about it in a safe way? Because that's the other argument is if we talk to kids about this, then like when they start having sex, they'll realize that condoms are necessary if they're going to do certain things and that type of stuff. Um how did it impact you?
1: Well, uh as far as my my sexual exploration, when I, you know, the first time I had sex or I'm sorry the first person I had sex with, the second time we had sex, I remember thinking to myself like this feels amazing. I wonder what it feels like with everyone else in the world. <laughs> and, and and I think I think that was probably when I realized I was not monogamous. Uh And, uh, I never felt, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't quite explain why when I was a kid, but I I always knew that anytime I picked up on homophobia in anyone that I didn't even want to be their platonic friend, you know, I was just like, Oh, something's not cool about that person. I'm I'm good. But I didn't necessarily, you know, uh, identify as homosexual or anything at that time, but it, uh, but I just kind of knew like, "Mm." and, and that sort of thing, guided my friend groups. And, you know, the your friend groups kind of determine, you know, your sexual exploration. You know, because if these are the people that you're surrounded by, uh, you know, these are the people that you're surrounded by, that you are uh at the very least platonically attracted to, mm-hmm. you know, and and so then it's like I found that as my friend group expanded, so did my sexual exploration. And that didn't really happen to me until I was in Atlanta. But to answer your question in regards to how it all influenced me, I think the um, the sex positivity, that part of my environment influenced me to be OK with exploration. You know, the sexually conservative nature of Detroit overall, not necessarily in my household, but overall, uh, that that kind of kept me from feeling comfortable in those sort of explorations while I was in Detroit. But that's also why I left home at 18, you know, so I haven't I haven't lived in Detroit since then.
0: And you moved to Atlanta after that, correct? Yes. So Atlanta in the 90s is is almost mythologized in some sub- you know, in, in our culture, right. And what was going on in the boom around music, around culture and everything. What was your experience being down there at that time? That was so rich in the development of American
1: culture. I worked in a music store in a mall uh-huh. in 1996 in Decatur, Georgia, Uh huh. Southwest Cab mall for anybody who, who's like, who's wondering. And, and it it was, I wish that people could, if they're going to time travel, that they could work in a music store during whatever time they land in. Because I remember there was a day where, and this this doesn't speak specifically to the Atlanta music scene, but it was February 14th, 1996. The using The Score, and Tupac's All Eyes On Me came out on the same day. That's all we were selling the entire day. And, and the mall was full of, you know, fashion of 1996 and the slang of and all of that. And and I remember it was also like the last the last freaknik that they had. Um, Yeah. So it was what you say about it being mythologized. That's something that I like to point to when people ask me because Oakland is my fifth city and people will ask me, which one do you like the best? And I say you're asking an impossible question because you cannot compare Detroit in the 80s and 90s to Atlanta in the late 90s and early 2000s to Las Vegas when I lived there, you know, to San Diego ever, right? Right. None of these places are comparable. Yeah.
0: Moving around really can shape your identity and shape how you see the world because you've lived in some, (laughs) some very different cities. I mean, Las Vegas is like nothing else in the country. Atlanta, same thing. San Diego is milk toast compared to everywhere else you've lived. How has that shaped how you interact with people and how you understand art?
1: As far as interacting with people, you know, I find it uh, a little bit easier at this point in my life to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas me, 20 years ago, I had this rigid view as to how people should be or, you know, and so <laughs> if people didn't, you know, approach me in this way, preconceived way that I thought they should, then, you know, I would create all sorts of stories around that. And that was, that's just unnecessary when you're meeting people, right? Uh, as far as how I perceive art, the thing that shapes when you are moving from city to city in your twenties and thirties, you know, you, there may be things that when you arrive in a city. You're like, uh. But then after you've lived in that city for five or 10 years, you love it, you find it beautiful. And then when you, you know, fly back in from a trip or something like that, you're like, oh, I really missed seeing XYZ. Right. And I, I feel like I have that perspective when it comes to, and this is just me time traveling. If I think about seeing Jingle Town and all of the mosaics around, on the buildings all around Jingle Tone. If I think about seeing that when I was, I don't know, 18, I would not have appreciated it as much as I do today because of living in all of these different places and, and seeing and even understanding how it's made and all of that. You know, that's another thing that really shifts the way that I, I, I perceive and appreciate art is having a better appreciation as to what goes into it. You know, uh, you take a pole dancing class, it changes the way you go to a strip club, right?
0: So there's a lot of folks who have never performed any form of the erotic arts. And a lot of people think stripping is you just get up on stage and take off your clothes. There is a lot more that goes into that. So for you, when you create a piece, when you're designing a performance, how do you put that together? Where does that come from?
1: Well, it can start, in a few different places sometimes it can start with concept like oh there's this character i want to bring to the stage and um and then from there you go to story and then you sort out costume and song etc sometimes it starts with the song you got that song that becomes the earworm and you cannot shake it and you're like i gotta do something with this and um and sometimes you just get baked out of your fucking mind and you're like hey you know what it would be a really cool idea if I had a suit that was connected by magnets, so when I took off the right side of the suit, the left side stayed on my body. And uh, and then I take those stony ideas to my uh, one of my costume makers, uh, who is also stony, and <laughs> and she's like, "Yes, let's make that idea come come to come to life."
0: That's excellent. You talk about being other people's muses. What's your muse?
1: Oh, that is such. That has always been a tough question for me because um, something that I, and, and don't worry, I've talked to my therapist about this, something <laughs> I've had trouble with is, is kind of having faith in people. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I'm really reluctant to, you know, look up to anyone mm-hmm. uh, because I know that, you know, human beings are human beings mm-hmm. and I don't want to... You know, everyone's like, oh, don't meet your heroes. I'm like, yeah, what if you don't have heroes in the first place? <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I tend to get my inspiration from circumstances or I always say I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I don't think like anyone else in the room. So because of that, it seems like I'm smart. And so that's the that's kind of the thing that happens when I when I am perceiving anything, you know, I'll see something, hear something. And, and I'll kind of think of it a different way and then that the person may have intended it. And then an idea will come from that. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, sometimes my inspiration can come from really, really odd places. And, um, I would use those odd, insp- you know, ways of inspiration to inspire others. I used to be a fitness coach and teaching like group exercise fitness and trying to get 30 people would do the same shit at once. You know, you kind of, you you have to, you got to sell it. You know, I remember seeing uh, this little kid, she's like five years old, she's in a running shoe store and she was on a treadmill and she was just going for it. She was doing her best to just run as fast as she could. But obviously as a five-year-old and mom is like, okay, you could get fucked up. So let me, you know, take you off of this treadmill and slow girl kicked and screamed all she wanted to do was run and i looked at that and i took that as inspiration i took that to class i was like oh okay imagine i know you may hate running but imagine you could like you couldn't run because someone wasn't wouldn't wouldn't let you and that's all you wanted to do and and so i used that as inspiration to get everybody to run so that's sort of you know that's how, how sort of my, how my brain works around inspiration i just take it in
0: we talk about being inspired by circumstance. The last three years have been a very unique circumstance for all of us.
1: Why? Wow, what's been going on?
0: <laughs> you know, you might've heard there's a little, little, little shit going on out there. Uh, has it changed how you've done burlesque? I mean, obviously we can't get on stage as much. There were a couple of years where it was really hard to find any live stage time, but has any of that inspired you or was it just more of a hibernation
1: period? It changed everything for me everything for me around burlesque everything for me around fitness everything or or, you know for me around hell even dating you know uh pandemic is a hell of a time to start or end a relationship okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) and when i say when i say hell of a i mean that could be really good it could be really fucking shitty Mm -hmm. you know as far as how it's changed the way I approach burlesque in in the before times, I was performing on average uh, like five times a month, and it was not uncommon for three of those performances to be in one night. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but but that was I did that I loved that I craved that I traveled all you know all over like Canada and Europe like performing, and when the entire world shut down. And I was sitting at home unemployed. All I could think about was for the last 10 years, I have, you know, traveled all over performing burlesque and I've loved it. But where did it get me? And so I just sat with that because there were there were friends of mine who, because they got on and stayed on a specific career path uh, when the pandemic hit, they were fine. And I was kicking myself, and that really shifted my perspective around um, seeing burlesque, seeing artistic entertainment, entertainment period, and the ROI behind it, because, you know, it's like, okay, sure, you get paid X number of dollars, but how many hours went into costuming and rehearsing and travel and everything? You know, and sure, you write a bunch of stuff off your taxes, but it's like, let's really look at the ROI here, because again, pandemic hit, we're all shut down. I'm sitting at home and broke, and so now here we are at this at this phase in the pandemic, because because it is not over. The what I find is um, my focus is on it's on a career path, and so when I perform burlesque, I do it when I feel like it these days. And the big difference there is instead of like coming home from a gig on Friday night and not unpacking my gig bag because I'm performing the same act tomorrow night, you know, instead of that, now it is me and my dear friend have been having lots of phone conversations, emails, and FaceTimes as we edit music together to create a duet that we're going to bring to the stage with a lot of love. And and I like that more patient, gentle approach because. You know, if I'm going to get on stage and try to bring any type of energy, then I gotta, I gotta put the love, love behind it. You know,
0: yeah. music has been a big shaper in in your career. It sounds like, and a big part of the inspiration and and how you do that. So, what is it about certain songs? What are those earworms? Or how do you put together that music? Because. You can't just strip to any song, right? Um, happy birthday sung by coworkers is not a great burlesque song, but how do you do? How do you
1: It is if it's your last day at work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's always the most most sad version of a music I can think of is like that that office sitting around the birthday cake and nobody wants to be there singing it, right? So how do you pick your music? How do you edit together and figure out this is what I want to do?
1: I'm going to pre-apologize because i know this sounds hella woo what i'm about to say but the music tends to find me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 the way that it does that is um i have a big music collection i always have i grew up in a musical household and um like my uncles were jazz musicians and shit like that so i have a big lp collection i have a big digital music collection and i i I'm always curious is like, I'll listen to something and then somebody's guest starring on that. I'm like, okay, what did they put out? Let me go listen to their stuff, you know? And in doing that, I find some things that are just not on the radio. And then, and from there, if, you know, if the song is dynamic, that's, that's a big, that's big for me because I I, I really love house music, but I don't want to perform the house music, you know, not only does the song have to be dynamic, but it's got to like, when it comes to dance classes, I tend to take uh, jazz dance classes. And when it comes to like my sort of uh, default style of burlesque that I present on stage, it tends to be grindhouse burlesque, Mm -hmm. you know? uh, And so, so there has to be, are are you two done? Are you done? Hmm? Okay. You work it out? All right. So, you know, grindhouse for us tends to be my my sort of default style, and and you can hear the grind in certain music. Okay, where it's like maybe it doesn't have like a, a gritty guitar or something like that 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 is a literal grind, but it it may have you know that that passion in the voice of the person singing that just lets you know there's this there's a strong need. You know, something something that's always been important to me with music is like. If I feel like they had a good time in the studio putting together that song or they, or I've seen them perform it live and they had a good time, that's another thing that will help music really speak to me.
0: When you're putting a piece together, do you think about how the audience is going to perceive it or do you do it for yourself?
1: I, I do it to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily for myself in the sense that I'm just doing this for me, fuck them. You know, not necessarily that, but also... I never do it specifically for their perception because mm-hmm. <clears throat> no matter what anyone does on stage, it is impossible to control the perception of everyone in the audience. And I find that when I try, like, oh, they're going to think X, you know, every time somebody comes up to me later, and they're like, oh, thank you, you know, for doing Y and Z. And um, uh, my favorite example of that is I have the Santa Claus Act and uh and in the act i have on i have these uh white iris contacts mm-hmm. and I only, I only do that because like genetically if you are raised that close to the north pole that's probably the color of your eyes right which is why you know no one's fucking raised up there and so, <laughs> it's, uh, so that's why the contacts are in but someone came up to me and they were like i really love your zombie santa act and i was like "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like that. That was not okay. Sure. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad you liked it. I mean, because it's you, you know what they say about fan fiction. It's like if the fan thinks that's what's happening. Cool. Great. I love it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How has performing burlesque changed your relationship with your own body?
1: You know what's funny is I never I've never had a bad relationship with my body, and and I spent um, I spent probably 12 years at. And the way that I approach fitness coaching, I was also a body image coach uh, because so many people would come to me and say, I hate my body, help me change it. And I would say, no, we're not going to do that. I'm like, I will help you get stronger. But if you're just looking for like, you know, fat loss or calorie counting or something like that, yeah, I'm not interested in that. And so um, as far as my relationship with my body, it's always been, my focus has always been, I just want to be strong. It was never I never approached fitness like from a vanity perspective. And so um, you know, when I when it comes time to like show my body on stage or something like that, I don't really think of it as I am showing my body. I think of it more like, you know, me taking clothes is gonna, you know, add this exciting entertainment value. Sure, people are gonna get, you know, have whatever feelings about that. And that's what I would probably do if I were going to have sex. So (laughs) you know what I mean? So it's but I never think of it as I am showing my body, and yeah. So because of that, I don't know that burlesque has you know changed my relationship with my body at all, just because I you know my focus has always been on strength. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that's come up with a number of the other performers we've interviewed this month is the reception they've had uh, as their different identities intersect with burlesque. I love the cattail going across your face, by the way. Uh, we welcome pets on this show how has being a black man changed the the reception or has it been very welcoming? Um, You know, because you don't see a ton of black male burlesque performers. Uh, You don't see a ton of male performers, period. There's a few in every one or two for most troops, but most troops are predominantly women. What's been your reception?
1: Well, my perception of Mm -hmm. my early reception was that I, I don't think I was good when I started, but a lot of people cheered and hooted and hollered and were super excited. And I think it was, I think a lot of that was due to uh, the novelty of like, hey, I've just seen 17 white women's trip and there's a black dude, you know? And so, <laughs> so they're like, yay, we're going to scream louder now because this is this thing that I'm seeing is different and unexpected. So that's, that's my perception of my reception early on. There are times when uh, there's a lecture that I give on unpacking racial fetishization and sexually charged spaces. And sometimes I feel that from audience members at a burlesque show, and that can be really, really frustrating because, um, you know, to anyone listening to this podcast, I'm into black guys is not a compliment. And, (laughs) And, you know, when people say things like that or they'll say, you know, tell me about their fantasies of black men or things like that after I perform, then uh, that never feels good. And that's that's usually that's usually my cue to leave. And so what what tends to happen uh, when I perform is I show up for my call time. I am backstage headphones on preparing once I actually perform. If I remember to bring a robe, maybe I'll hang in the audience for a little bit. But, you know, often I won't just because I don't want some handsy white woman to be all like, oh, blah, blah, blah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't, as a country, dealt with racial fetishization. And Black men have historically been over-sexualized as a way of dehumanizing them. Do you find there are ways to address that in, in what you add to your performance, or is it just, you're going to perform because you enjoy it. This is what you want to do. And that just comes with, with the performance. Is understanding that there are some people who will always do that type of fetishization and dehumanization as part of, part of seeing a black man on stage.
1: So the interesting thing about that is, um, you know, one of the, th- one of the, um, the things that, you know, everyone should know in burlesque is that the audience members, unless it's a song they know super well, they cannot hear the lyrics and the lyrics of the song should not tell the story of your act. And I say all of that to say that there is an act that I have where it's not lyrics to a song. I'm actually doing spoken word while doing a reverse strip tease. And so, and in the spoken word, I am specifically explaining to the audience, my experience as a black man and, and, you know, and sort of how they can not perpetuate those experiences. And even after that specific explanation is through the audience members, the piece is called, I am not a threat. And I was just talking about how, okay, you, you know, don't, pre- if don't perceive me to be X, Y, Z just because this is what you've seen on the news, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and after that, A white dude came up to me and said, "Yeah, man, I feel like that sometimes." And I was like, "You didn't hear a motherfucking word I said, did you?" And so I'm 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 telling this story to to drive home the point that I have never other other than that piece and some other subtleties in other acts, I don't spend a lot of time and energy trying to you know uh, deliver that message through performing burlesque because even after explaining it word for word still still went over went over the heads of a few people so yeah (laughs) uh yes it's
0: it's so relatable (laughs) honestly that shit's gonna happen with all sorts of different identities when you get on stage right and uh Mm -hmm. White people have an amazing power, which is to center ourselves in absolutely everything. It is our superpower. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) Wow. So the other group of folks that you fit in well with is we have a lot of bisexual folks on the show. Um, And I love talking to other bi folks because it is a unique identity that I think gets overshadowed when we talk about LGBTQ issues. There's not a lot of spaces where bi folks sit and talk about being bi. So. What is it like to date as a bi man, as an out bi man?
1: It's interesting because there are, there are people who you didn't know you could not date until they knew that you were bisexual, because then the biphobia comes out and it's like, oh damn, you're cute too. And (laughs) I don't, while I find myself, you know, attracted to some men, generally, I don't, I don't date them in the sense that like, you know, I won't ask them out, but like, you know, I'll be open if they ask me out. And even then it's like, "Mm, I don't know, because just because generally speaking, dude's kind of annoy me. Okay. And, uh, and so it's like, if somebody's cool, they're cool. Right. But "Mm." As as far as a ge- broad generalization goes, that 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 can be a thing. So, yeah, I think, um, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about just sort of recognizing homophobia at an early age. Uh, even before I found myself identifying as as bisexual, because and and to be clear, I don't I don't necessarily think of myself as uh, well. And, and let me let me back up. Let me reframe that. I never thought of like when I announced to the world. I never thought of it as coming out it was more like to me it just kind of felt like you know we grow we change we evolve and i was like this is who i am today and uh but even even before i would i would pick up on phobia and i was just like yeah i really don't want to even date you because that's just shitty you know yeah so it limits the dating pool it is it is interesting what expectations people have of you because of that. Because, you know, it's kind of, people just kind of assume like, oh, hey, that person over there is available, uh, you know, and and they check your boxes. Do you want to, you know, and I'm like, no, I don't know shit about that person. <laughs> it's, not, it's not how dating works.
0: <laughs> One of the things that every bi woman has, has said on the show that I've interviewed is as soon as somebody finds out you're bi, Often the thing is, oh, so you're into threesomes. Does the same thing happen when you're a guy? Do people immediately assume that you want to have a threesome with them?
1: No, that's not been. That's I not mean been. it's it's one of it's one of those things where it's like, I mean that is something I have initiated, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, um, hey, you two are cute, let's go in there or whatever. But um, but no one, I've not had anyone assume it though, um, and. You know, with the caveat that unless we are talking like about that sort of thing, like if we are messaging on fat life, there's a chance that we're already kind of on that subject. anyway.
0: Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's definitely a gender difference um, when it comes to being bi around that. You talk about experience biphobia. Do you feel that more from the the heterosexual side of dating or from the queer community? Where do you, Where does that come up most often for you?
1: Oh, definitely hetero. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I I can't say that I've ever felt it in the queer community. Um, And you know, I have this also. I I also have this other thing that's different, or you know, a different set of circumstances, in the sense that I don't like generally as far as the vibes that I put off. I don't. I don't necessarily you know put off like seeking approval sort of vibes. And so because of that, a lot of people. I don't. I don't really get a lot of people like offering unsolicited, you know, opinions on my sexuality or anything like that. And so, um, so I find that to be a bit of a benefit because I don't have to, I don't either don't have to hear that shit or maybe I just choose don't, not to hear it or whatever, but.
0: this is really interesting because as, as a guy, your experience is so different than so many of my female bisexual folks that I have on the show. You are on social media. And one thing that any female bodied person experiences is, an enormous <clears throat> amount of unsolicited dick pics.
1: Like
0: we get a ton. Well, we, Do you guys get I,
1: that? I get them too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, no, I'm not going to say that I get a lot, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe three. Right. So, so definitely not a lot, but it, it happens. And um, and I actually wrote a blog post about this about um, not defending dick pics, but just sort of explaining. Why it is a thing and why it probably won't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, it is it's simple shit. It's really just, you know, um, as cis men were told our entire lives, like, hey, that's the thing that uh, you know, is is considered of value, right? Mm-hmm. And so and, and also in the process, we're gonna say, hey, go out in the world, go out and get the girl, but we're not gonna teach you any communication skills, any emotional intelligence. And we're also not gonna have you learn from women about how to engage with women instead you'll just hear it from your old christy uncles and then because of that people just you know they just keep repeating these shitty shitty habits and they have no communication skills and they know that hey well obviously all they want is the dick because i watch porn and that's what they teach me so and i want to make a quick note here uh that was not a diss on porn it's just I, i like to talk about how in, in, in the world, we have we have science classes that are mandatory, and we also have science fiction. The only way those two things can coexist is if you have the education component. Now, we have no comprehensive sex education, but we have sex fiction, porn. And then people want to vilify porn where we don't have the education component. It's like, what? Would you vilify science or if there was only sci-fi and no classes?
0: The thing that really drove that home is now it's almost 10 years old now. There was a study done in the UK and they asked kids between 16 and 24, what was the main reason they were watching porn? And what it came down to is most of them were looking to figure out how to initiate sex. So when you realize that's where people are getting their information, dick pics make a ton of sense because so much of porn is, you know, three seconds of talking and then boom, there's a dick. Um, Right, right. And it, it makes complete sense when we don't have this education around it. We never talk to, we don't even talk to college students about how to flirt and hit on people and stuff when you, and, cause I've taught college sex ed classes and
1: that's still not part of the required remark-
0: curriculum is that communication. What are you reading?
1: Kind of two things. It's uh, one of them is uh, Thick Not Hun's how-to series. So it's like how to eat, how to fight, how to walk. And another one is a, um, it's a 50-year collection of Green Lantern, Jon Stewart, Black Green Lantern.
0: Awesome. So is Green Lantern your favorite superhero?
1: No, I don't necessarily have favorites these days. Like when I was a kid, my my favorites were Spider-Man and Wolverine when I was a kid. But now it's like, I don't necessarily like, I don't know, think in terms of favorites anymore. It's like, I enjoy, I just enjoy good stories. So a lot of times I do like, when I was a kid and I collected comic books, I would pick the comic based on uh, you know, usually based on the cover or like who drew the 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 mag. And these days I pick based on the writer. So
0: for who, so we do have quite a few people on the show who are big comic book fans. We've done entire episodes on like Marvel or, you know, comics in general. Who are some of your favorite writers in comic book uh in the comic book world?
1: Uh I like Brian K Vaughn. and um and I like, uh, I like a lot of the stuff that image puts out mm-hmm. uh, image comments. Put, they, they put out stuff from good writers. And so because of that, it's like, I find myself caring about these stories. Uh, but I've, I've, I think the last three series that I read were by Brian K Vaughn. So, and he, he, so he's known for like saga and paper girls and stuff like that.
0: Oh, that's very cool. Have you done a burlesque number based on a superhero?
1: Yes, I, I'm trying to think, um, because I feel like there was, okay, so I did a few characters, not all necessarily superheroes, Um, there is, I did a Venom act, Mm -hmm. Gumby is kind of a superhero, right? That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And and, um, Geordie LaForge.
0: Oh, fun.
1: And... I feel like there was one other character. Um, oh, Black Dynamite.
0: Oh, very cool. I just finished watching the, the series again um, with my partner. I hadn't seen that in a while. That's a fun series.
1: Um, yeah, that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, for folks who are looking at exploring the the erotic arts, since you have years and years of experience in this, do you have suggestions of where to start, how to break into this how to make this a hobby or a
1: career i would suggest starting small and weird you know because um the not only small and weird but also go to places where you don't see yourself that that gig that i mentioned before at apache cafe where it was the you know i was modeling in the back um the first thing that the curator said to me when I approached her about it was, she said, you'll be our first male. And then fast forward to a few years later when I was living in San Diego and I, I started doing Dr. Sketches, they said the exact same thing. They are like, you'll be our first male. So that's what I mean when it's like small, weird, and maybe a place where you don't see yourself. And I, and I do know that that last piece about maybe you don't see yourself in that space, maybe challenging for people for various reasons. It may be because, oh well, I don't feel safe or comfortable approaching it on my own if I'm the only one like me there. Mm-hmm. And then there also may be the issue of, oh well, um you know, maybe there are gatekeepers that, you know, are making it challenging for this, you know, unique individual to step up. And so in cases like that, you may have to just start your own shit. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's and and that that is really the small and weird component because even if you just have hey everybody I'm just gonna have this cute art event with some like nude figure models or something like that uh, in my one bedroom apartment and there are only 12 of you can come start there you know start your own shit
0: I love that I love that. So many of the really great shows I've been to have started out as small, weird shit that somebody created because there was nothing else out there for them that they wanted. Uh, yeah. It's fan- yep. That's fantastic. So while I know you've taken a step back from social media, if people want to find you, if they want to find your gigs, if they want to find your writings, your blogs, all of that, where do they go?
1: Uh, I think the best option is going to be my link tree. And I say that because sometimes I'll change the links where my blog will be on there and, and stuff like that. And uh and if I'm not mistaken, are you am I going to give you my link tree and then you'll say it later or something? Yeah, okay.
0: yeah. We'll okay. we'll have it all up in the show
1: notes and stuff. Cool. Um, but yeah, because there it's like sometimes I'll turn on my blog link and people can find that and that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm kind of turning into like the Bill Murray of burlesque where it's like like <laughs> you're like, Can anybody reach him? You know, <laughs> like and then periodically he just shows up, you know.
0: and you do have a gig coming
1: up right uh where you're doing the duet
0: piece
1: yes that's going to be june 18th it is going to be uh that's a saturday june 18th at oasis in san francisco i apologize because the name of the show escapes me in this moment uh but myself jet noir is going to be uh doing a duet with vixen monroe yeah, it is. It's going to be some powerful stuff. So definitely come to that. And oh, and there will definitely be a link to that on my link tree once I get that all squared away. And yeah, that's my my main thing that's coming up.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: From Fat Chicks on Top. If you've liked this program and you want more conversation, you want more queer stuff, please check out Hello Welcome with Terry Dornack on all streaming services.
1: And now, a moment of gratitude. I am currently grateful for my decision to step away from social media. Uh, I've been off for about a month. Actually, it's probably even longer than that now. Um, and in that time, I've read three books. Okay, and it's and and the thing is, I've the thought that has occurred to me more than once is this cannot be the same brain that used to run to the library and read books all the time. And I'm like, whatever happened to that brain is still in there, isn't it? And one day I realized I was like. It was it was the doom scrolling. It was just when you no brain is meant to take in you know uh, death notice here, birth notice there, uh, congratulations on a new job over here, war happening over there, and take all of that in inside of like ten minutes is just too much for. Our, is just too much emotional weight, you know. And when I stopped doing that shit, I mean, just took it off my phone and everything. I just I started writing poetry again. I started reading, like reading for fun, you know, instead of like homework. So yeah, that decision is the thing that I am highly grateful for because it's been the best thing that I've done for my mental health in the last few years.
0: Hi, this is Antti Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. at FatChicksOnTop.com